When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Daily Premier League action and reaction. This is Football Social Daily. Hello there. Welcome to Football Social Daily. Pitching the Premier League content every day of the season and knocking it out the park. I'm Jim Salverson and on today's podcast we've got Niall McCorn. Morning Niall. Morning boys. I'm actually a little bit hungover this morning. Um, it's hungover. the first time in months. It's a Wednesday. I, I had two cans of lager last night and because it's been lockdown <laughs> I've not really been out anywhere or drank any beer. So watching Portsmouth last night I thought I'll treat myself to a couple of cans of beer. Feel terrible this morning. I don't know what's got wow. into me. <laughs> wow, two cans. Of, what was it? Super tenants? <laughs> no, I wish it was. Might feel a right, bit better. We've also got a hopefully feeling more chipper. Ian, the voice, Brannon on the podcast. How are you doing, Ian? Uh, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, I mean, the end of lockdown uh, it didn't hit me that hard. You realise that you could actually buy alcohol during lockdown and drink it in your own house. <laughs> I just don't <laughs> get the same vibes, though, Ian. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I've had no such reservations about getting stuck in during lockdown, I can tell you that much. <laughs> Let's get on with the football though, because content-wise, we have Champions League games to go at today. Liverpool and Manchester City both struggling to impress last night in their games in the Champions League. Not that it matters, they're both through to the next round anyway. And I've got a feeling it's going to be more of the same tonight as Manchester United face PSG and Chelsea. They travel to Sevilla. So maybe a chance for some of those fringe players in those squads to get a run out. We're going to focus on Europe's Premier competition and the Premier League teams in that Premier competition in a little bit. Plus, we're going to be answering your questions in any question answered. Some meaty queries to get our teeth into, including, of course, and maybe predictably, the divisive topic of offside and VAR. We'll get onto that shortly as well. Plus, we're going to be speaking to West Ham Journo for West Ham Till I Die and Forever West Ham Harry Smith as we go down Green Street for today's Floodlight Focus and we talk about West Ham United. Maybe the surprise package this Premier League season. Before we get on to the football though we just need to give a little bit of a mention to a review we've had in of the podcast as always if you want to leave us a review on apple podcasts or however you listen to the show you could get a shout out on the podcast we might read your review and either praise you for it or criticize you for it as is the case occasionally so today's review begins 
Although Niall has alienated Tottenham fans with his recent remarks, <laughs> there is a, there's a tone of a good start. There's a tone of sarcasm about this one. I think I think that was very tongue in cheek. He says, "I still love the show and the insight that's being given. Being in the states, it's good coverage of the Premier League as it's hard to come by." That said. Your show is a daily podcast of mine, so I listen every day. I listen to it cooking, working out, driving to work, or any other chance I get. So CBitar38, who's left this review, Christian, his name is Christian, who lives in Denver, is a big fan of the show. He listens all the time, and he's finishing his review by saying, keep up the good work. And Jim, I'm hoping to get a shout out this time round, as it's my third time of leaving a review. So I, oh, I felt on a bound. Third time lucky. Yeah, apologies, Christian, for missing you in previous occasions. But thank you very much for leaving your comments. And here is your official shout-out. Little round of applause. <laughs> Incidentally, the best way to get a shout-out leaving a review is to heap praise on me personally. <laughs> that, that way you will get plenty of mentions in the podcast. So keep your reviews coming. Thank you very much for your comments. We love reading what you make of the show. So leave us a review. We could give you a shout-out on the podcast. But let's get stuck into the football. Champions League last night. Porto versus City. Liverpool versus Ajax. Let's start with the former. We'll rattle through these Champions League games because it wasn't a particularly exciting game for Manchester City last night. It was nil-nil versus Porto. And yet another chance, Ian, or yet another example, I should say, of City just failing to break down well-organised defences, which we've seen so many times this season. Yeah, we've, we've spoken about it, you know, three or four times, I think, over the last um, month or so about Man City really not breaking um, teams down. And yesterday, the interesting thing was that everything really had changed, uh, particularly in their midfield. You know, um, Pep rested a lot of players. The only constant was Rodri. So I'm wondering, by process of elimination, uh, whilst he has pretty much been an ever-present for Man City, is... Is he perhaps not quite as intense as, as perhaps some of his uh, the, the forefathers in the in the great uh, team at uh, Man City under Pep Guardiola? Because um, he's he's the only he's the only one that hasn't changed. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm blaming it on him. <laughs> it's an interesting thought. I mean, Rodri's role. It, Rodri isn't a creator. We know that, but he's kind of brought into the side to mm. as a replacement for Fernandinho ultimately. But it it seems unfair, Niall, to leave the. Let level the blame at him for the lack of creativity seemingly in that City side at the moment. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, Rodri's position is as a defensive midfielder and although you'd like to see your kind of box-to-box midfielders, your combative, combative midfielders getting more goals, certainly I'd like to see Rodri get more goals and I think City fans will. You can't lay the blame at him. You know, he's not supposed to be the creator. He's not in the side as a creator. I mean, he was kind of one of the players that they scouted and touted to replace Fernandinho and of course Fernandinho is still at the football club so there's several other players that Manchester City looked at to come into that defensive midfield role and in the end Rodri was picked but certainly in terms of that attacking midfield conundrum there is something not quite right there maybe it's a lack of chemistry uh, and, and you just wonder what that is down to is it down to the departure of David Silva because I think people suggesting that Phil Foden was the natural heir to David Silva do have a massive point I think I was one of the people that banged the drum saying that Phil Foden needs to step into Silva's shoes but let's not forget Foden uh, as impressive as, as he's been this season I think he's been one of City's best players this season by the way I think that still 
maybe the lack of games that he's had in previous seasons might now be just starting to show a little bit. And it is true that he does need more game time. He does need more experience. And he's showing that he can be very, very good when he does start a run of games. He often performs when he plays, whether that's off the bench or from the start. But, you know, sometimes you just need to get battle hardened you need to get toughened and you need to get that experience and that's something that David Silva had now David Silva came to the Premier League in 2010 I think it was and obviously left um, earlier this year so he had like a 10-year stint at Manchester City everyone knew how good he was in the first couple of years David Silva but it wasn't really until maybe 2014 2015 and a little bit later when Pep came in and he had had five full years at Manchester City that people were really showing Uh, saying how good he was and he was really showing Mm. the sort of the pinnacle of his powers Uh, I'm not saying that it's going to take Foden five years to reach that level I mean if he even reaches 80% of David Silva's level he's going to be a very very good player in the Premier League but I just think sometimes it does take a bit of time to get into your stride and particularly even though Foden's been training in that um, system with those players for a long long time now sometimes there is no better way to earn your stripes than to do it in match situations um, I'm not again laying the blame of City's lack of creativity at Phil Foden at all I think he's got plenty of it I just think that people that maybe are starting to think is Foden doing enough need to kind of check their thoughts a little bit just purely because you know he is still new to this he's still a very very young man um, Bernardo Silva another player who is has shown in the past in previous seasons how good he can be um where's the Bernardo of two seasons ago gone you know that's that's my question I feel like I've barely seen him this season I'm a big fan of Bernardo Silva feel like he's been absent this year Riyad Mahrez people saying is he um a man Pep Guardiola type player well he's certainly got the quality and Pep picked him to sign him from Leicester so, you know, obviously he, he sees something in Mares, but the question is, is Mares too greedy? Is he always looking to cut onto that left foot to try and find the corner when really maybe you should be thinking about building up play a little bit more? So I don't think there's one particular factor you can pinpoint with Manchester City going forward. Obviously, they miss Aguero. He's had this knee meniscus injury, which he had an operation on. It's flared up again. He didn't travel to Porto. He stayed in Manchester because his knee's still giving him jip, even after the operation. So I think that there are sort of an amalgamation of factors, let's just say, at Manchester City as to why they're not quite as creative as they have been in the past. Uh, And sometimes you just kind of, you get a little bit blunted over time. To be able to stay potent in attack for four, five years is difficult. So it's just a bit of a downspell for Manchester City. I don't think they can be too concerned. I mean, it's not going to last the whole season, is it? Um, But again, if you're talking about players to kind of lay the blame out, I don't think you can blame anyone, really. It's just a, um, a, a product of the situation that City have found themselves in. We're going to talk more a little bit later about Manchester City's creative problem in midfield because it's one of the questions in our AQA section of the show we might have already answered that but we'll leave that there for now it wasn't that bad for Manchester City last night in truth the result nil-nil probably doesn't tell the whole story because they did create chances the Porto keeper was absolutely superb last night and we did see some flashes from the likes of Bernardo Silva I think he actually played quite well last night Phil Foden as well showed a little bit of spark in midfield do you think anyone from last night's performance Ian is going to earn themselves a place in that Fulham team because at the end of the day 
If you're Pep Guardiola, the time to experiment with your lineup is going to be against Fulham. Yeah, well, I think we've already mentioned the one. I mean, um, Rodri has been the um, the ever present for Man City pretty much. I think I think he's played um, 16 of the last 17 matches, so I don't think uh, he's going to be going anywhere. Foden is um, certainly starting to look like um, you know a, a world beater. I think certainly in the Premier League is is um, coming to um, the attention a lot more. Um, I think than previously. I know he's been spoken about um, with people who keep a close eye on. On various teams for uh, for quite a while, but I think he's starting to deliver, so I can see him keeping his um, his place. Um, and then aside that, I mean, I don't know, Raheem Sterling. Do you think he'd rest him for for Fulham? I'm not sure. I mean, he started last night, and it was a fairly decent lineup for for Man City when you look at it. There were changes, but it was still a strong team. I mean, Raheem Sterling, uh, you'd, you'd think would be. Um, you know, involved uh, for, for a game, at least for a part. Being very much criticised recently, Raheem Sterling. Well, that's nothing new, is it? No, Jim? this is He's true. always being criticised. Yeah, but I mean, he's... He's, he's, he's no stranger to that. I mean, he's, I think it's water for ducks back. But if, he, if he's looking to, to get a bit of confidence uh, on, on, on that uh, note, then you'd, you'd think that um, maybe that would be a boost for him to have a good game against Fulham. That might um, ease those, uh, those concerns, perhaps. But um, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, that yeah, those, those players were mentioned there, Foden... Um, and maybe maybe Sterling and um, and uh, Rodri, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think he'll be keeping his. Was place. a nil nil result. No one's going to be too upset because both teams go through to the next round of the Champions League, and so it was no surprise. It felt a little bit lacklustre, and you'd probably say the same about Liverpool's game. It was one nil against Ajax. Liverpool struggled a little bit too creating chances there, Niall, and it took a goalkeeping mistake hmm. to get the winner. A misjudged Neko Williams cross that ended up being tapped into the back of the net. I mean, again, it's one of those situations for Liverpool where there's not much to say about the game. They just didn't quite seem at the races, but you can understand why, given the circumstances around Champions League and qualification to the next stage. Yeah, well, Liverpool needed a result last night, much like Manchester City. I think the reason why Pep picked a reasonably strong side for City was because they needed a result, a draw or a win against Porto to qualify. And let's not forget, even though this is kind of a a nuance of the game, when you finish top of your Champions League group, you're getting an easier, in inverted commas, draw in the next stage. You're getting a team that finished second in their group. So, you know, by rule of thumb, you'd think that you'd get an easier tie in the last 16 um, if you finish top of your group. Liverpool, of course, they needed to make sure they got the result against Ajax because if they didn't beat Ajax, that means everything was riding on that final game of the group stage against Mitchelland. And you don't want to mm. be going into that game against the sort of uh, the, the Danish minnows kind of, you know, prying for a result, so to speak. So certainly Liverpool got the job done, even though it was a mistake, as you say, um, you've got to be there to, to capitalise, to profit from the mistake. Liverpool have done that. And that is what good teams do. Sometimes it is only a mistake, which is the difference. So I think of a game last season between Sheffield United and Liverpool where Dean Henderson let the ball through his legs. And that was an extremely tight game. And I'm not saying that Liverpool forced Henderson into the mistake, but sometimes it is just a matter of when your luck's going for you, when you're performing well, when you're a good team, you do seem to get these slices of luck. And that's just the way the cookie crumbles, I think. Um, So they got the job done. And you're right, Jim, they are going to struggle a little bit. They've had... I think this has knocked them back more than people realise, this injury situation, the game Mm. against Brighton conceding last minute players going down left, right and centre, Jurgen Klopp having his pants pulled down by Des Kelly at BT Sport in that interview. Um, I just think that it is kind of shaking Liverpool a little bit, but every time Liverpool look like they're rocking, they just steady themselves. 
because they are rock steady at this moment in terms of a football club on a trajectory, on a trajectory, on a pathway. They know what they need to do. They knew what they needed to do last night against Ajax, and that was get a result. Don't lose the game. They didn't. They ended up winning the game, um, and that's all you can ask. Like you say, with so many injuries, uh, so much to think about for Jurgen Klopp in the in the next few weeks, particularly with the Christmas schedule, where we know games are every two or three days, and the intensity is ridiculous. Um, it, it, it's I'm sure a, a welcome result for Liverpool, and I think one of those games where you don't really care how you get the mm. win as long as you just do. So I don't think Liverpool fans would be too concerned about it just yet. The big news, I guess, was the absence of Alisson in goal, who is the latest injury worry for Liverpool. Nine senior players now out. And potentially interesting that Klopp went for the young goalkeeper, Kelleher. Is it Kelleher, Niall? I think so. Well, I mean, even though I've got the most Irish name in the history of Irish names, I'm not particularly good at pronunciation. <laughs> okay. I, I thought it was Kellier or something like that, but I'm not sure. Ian, maybe you might know. I, yeah, I heard Kelleher on the uh, on the commentary last night, so that I'm, I'm going with that. <laughs> what about his first name, Jim? I'd have no idea. Do you know what? I've got yeah. no idea. Dave, Dave Kelleher. I, I want you to. <laughs> I want you to read it out. <laughs> oh my god! I'm not even having a go at that one. <laughs> Craig. <laughs> it's Keevan. Keevan. K I O I M H I N. Yeah. Wow, that's an interesting spelling of that one. Well, I'm never getting anywhere near that. I'm going to be calling him Kelleher from now till the end of time. <laughs> Just like I'm not going to go for Adrian's full name, Adrian San Miguel, who wasn't picked in net. Oh, don't be making my headache again, talking about Lagla. <laughs> <laughs> well, what does that say about his future, Ian? Because he came, when, he came, when he came into Liverpool, he had a few great performances in place of Alisson. Everyone was saying West Ham were foolish for letting him go, but... Since then, he's made a few high-profile mistakes and being dropped for this game against Ajax in favour of the, the young Irish lad, what does that say about his future at the club? How is, I mean, is that it for Adrian? I think, well, it's very difficult to say. I mean, as you say, Liverpool have got some injury concerns. From reading between the lines, um, it looks like that um, the uh, the new guy, uh, Kelleher, the, you know, the, the 22-year-old youngster that uh, got his opportunity last night, is certainly um, firmly in Jurgen Klopp's thoughts. I mean, he gave him this chance um, last night and he was very impressed reading the reports afterwards with his performance. Jurgen Klopp said that uh, it, it was just you know fantastic and, and the kid will either sleep very well or not at all tonight is, is what uh, Jurgen Klopp said. Um, he picked him because he's a better player of the ball with his feet from from what I've read and, and that seems to be something that Jurgen Klopp is very keen on uh, uh, having as a, a skill for his, his goalkeepers, um, being able to play the ball out a bit more with their feet and, and be more of a, a footballer as well as a shot stopper. So that's possibly where he's coming from. I don't know how, uh, how mm. good Adrian is um, on that side of things, but um, certainly he uh, feels that he's, um, he's, he's perhaps not as good as, as Kelleher at it and uh, wants to develop him. An increasingly familiar story, that, isn't it? Goalkeepers having to be good with their feet as well as stopping shots. Let's move on to tonight's games very quickly. You've got Sevilla versus Chelsea, Manchester United versus PSG. Uh, let's talk about Sevilla's game against Chelsea first. Both teams have qualified already for the next round of the Champions League. So I guess the best you can say about this, or the most you can say about this, Niall, is that it's a chance for Lampard to rotate a little bit, bring in some of the, that young core of players that maybe he struggled to keep happy this season with the new players that are coming in so we could see the likes of Billy Gilmore maybe getting a chance again 
I'd like to. I really like Billy Gilmore. I think he's shown um, in flashes what a good player he can be. I think Roy Keane described him as having world-class potential. You know, and someone as miserable as Roy Keane, that doesn't come out of his <laughs> mouth too often. So definitely a chance for Lampard to rotate. And I think this is where you play the game of chess as a manager. This is where you earn your cash, you earn your wages as a manager, because Chelsea will know that they're in a good run of form and they want to keep the momentum on, um, the momentum up. But also they'll know that with Christmas around the corner and games every couple of days, they need to keep their best players fit, particularly if they're going to mount a charge for the league title this season. Um, the nil-nil draw against Tottenham, um, Ben Chilwell actually rolled his ankle in that game and it looks like he's come through okay. So I don't expect him to play against Sevilla. Um, but Sevilla are a good side. If, if you treat them lightly, there's a chance you could get thumped three or four. I'm not saying that's going to happen to Chelsea. I think their defence has improved tenfold since the start of the season. Certainly, mm. Thiago Silva has looked a lot more assured than he did on his debut against West Brom, which was a bit of a, a, bit of a disaster by all accounts. So... Certainly a chance for Chelsea and Lampard to rotate. I think that they need to rotate smartly because you want to keep players match fit, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you don't put them at risk of injury. Uh, and that is the chess game you play, as I say, as a manager. So certainly a chance for some of the young players like Gilmore to come in, a chance for perhaps some of them to show what they can do against what is going to be a tough opposition in Sevilla. But it's the same scenario as with Liverpool. If Chelsea can finish top of the table in their group, the chances are that they'll get an easier draw in the next stage of the competition. So a welcome thing for me. Uh, I don't know how the Chelsea fans will feel about it, but certainly a bit of pressure off of Lampard on this game, which is positive because qualifying for the Champions League is kind of one box ticked already this season for him. Um, the next one will be to compete for the title. And, you know, if you have a dodgy Chris that can throw your title hopes completely out um, out of the water. So, yeah, Chelsea will need to, uh, to to tiptoe around this one wisely, I'd say. As you say, Sevilla, no pushovers at all. They haven't lost to English opposition in the last seven meetings. The last time was in 2017 against Leicester City, surprisingly enough. Manchester United are against PSG tonight. We know that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer loves a result against PSG, but it's a similar situation this one, Ian. Manchester United ultimately just need a point. They will finish top of the league and that may or may not be important as Niall points out. But I guess for Solskjaer, it's a chance to rotate a little bit. And it's a bit different to Lampard at Chelsea. It's not so much the young players that he's going to be giving a chance into, but maybe those those fringe players, people like uh, Donny van der Beek, who's not really had much of a chance in midfield. Maybe Dean Henderson play him in place of David De Gea, who's struggling with an injury at the moment. So... A bit of a selection headache for Solskjaer at the moment, I guess. Yeah, and, and from looking at it, it looks like David De Gea could be a, a surprise inclusion in tonight's team, actually. He's uh, um, fit, according to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and, okay. uh, and th- that he might well be involved. Um, and as you say, it looks like he's giving um, a chance to, to some of those rather expensive household names who have who've not really managed to break their way into the team. Um, even um, Anton Martial, Paul Pogba could be available to, to play tonight as well. So while the chat in, in that Chelsea match we were just mentioning, you know, it's all about the youngsters getting a go it's um, some of those um, classic names of Man United from the last uh, four or five years or so that uh, are looking to to maybe get in there and, and reassert themselves in the in the Man United team and into Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's uh, thoughts it'd be interesting because it really from reading between the lines nobody really knows exactly what he's going to do but it does seem to be erring on the side of uh, experience over youth can I just say as well, guys, by the way, just kind of building on what I said before, I'm looking at the group tables for the Champions League here. 
How well are the Premier League sides doing, by the way, considering yeah. it doesn't feel like they're doing that way? <laughs> yeah. um, Manchester United are top of their group, Group H. Uh, Chelsea are top of Group E. Liverpool top of Group D. And Manchester City top of uh, of Group C. So you look at some of the other sides. I mean, Bayern are top of their group in Group A. Dortmund are top of their group in Group F. And Barca are top of Group G. So... You know, kind of maybe even backtracking on what I said just a moment ago, maybe Chelsea desperately do want to finish top of their group to avoid the likes of Liverpool, to avoid the likes of Barcelona and Bayern Munich. Well, they, but you can't I play mean, another. You can't play another English side in yeah, this right. round. Can the you? the seeded teams will be away in the first legs of the uh, of whatever the fixtures are when they're drawn. I mean, still though, I mean, you, you look four Champions League. Um, campaigns for four Premier League teams and they're all top I mean I still don't feel I don't know what you boys think but I still don't feel mm. like a, an English team will win it this year I don't know why I just don't get that same feeling with any of our teams even though they're all top of the table so maybe it's going to be one of those weird campaigns like Liverpool 2005 or Chelsea 2012 where a Premier League side that doesn't feel like they're kind of equipped to win it might go on and do so who knows I was predicting Manchester City to win the Champions League at the beginning of the season, but obviously their form has been iffy in the domestic but, league. But maybe, maybe that yeah. doesn't make a difference in Europe. Well, they've conceded one in Europe, Jim, all mm. season, Manchester City. They've scored 10 and conceded one. And they've kept five clean sheets. Uh, sorry, not five clean sheets. They kept four clean sheets in a row um, in the Champions League. And, you know, that's their best run in Europe since the Cup Winners' Cup in the 70s, I think. So... You know, Manchester City, everyone knows that that's their aim, isn't it? The Champions League, it's Pep Guardiola's goal. But yeah, positive to see Premier League sides doing so well. And Manchester United and Chelsea have a chance to keep that up tonight. Doing very well in the Europa League, the Premier League sides as well. So maybe this is the Premier League's year to shine in Europe. We'll talk about the Europa League later on in the week on Football Social Daily. But next, we're going to be answering your questions in any questions answered. That is coming up on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sports Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. It's the AQA section of the podcast that we do every single Wednesday, answering your questions that you can send in via social media at The Sports Social on Twitter, Sports Social Official on Instagram. You can find links to all of those on the website, sports-social.co.uk. Going to start off with a question from Sandy Claus on Twitter, who I think has done that thing where they change their name slightly to fit in with the festive season. And we've kind of touched on this already, but I'm going to ask it anyway, see if we can build on what Niall was saying earlier. Yeah, because Sandy Claw says, how do you solve Manchester City's attacking midfield problem, in inverted commas? Is it Bernardo's fault? Is it Mares's fault? Not replacing David Silva? Is Phil Foden the answer? How does Pep add more creativity to the middle of the park? Is it a personnel problem, Ian? Here, Does he need to go out and spend a great big chunk of money on a creative player to sit in the middle? Or is it that teams are kind of working out how to nullify a Pep Guardiola attack at the moment? Now, you know how I like a good stat, and they're always uh, yep. 100% accurate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> never questioned on social media ne- after ne- the event. 
Yeah, absolutely. Never questioned. Uh, absolutely. Um, it seems that the the way that Man City are playing this year is is slightly different from previous years. Certainly in the years where they won the championship, and and that is in that they're not winning the ball back as fast as they were, which obviously impacts their attacking creativity. Because if you haven't got the ball, there's not much you can do with it. So they they mm. seem to be giving. Um, the opposition teams more time on the ball than they did in those in those years where they won. So that's one thing that um, possibly they need to look at. Um, I think that Man City missed out on maybe one or two um, signings. That I think there was a player I can't remember his name, but he went to Barcelona at the last minute, and uh, I think um, that sort of De Jong. that was him. Yes, De Jong. That's right. Yeah. He uh, that ruined Pep's plans a little bit. Um, apparently, he's got his eye now on Kang In Lee who is the um, star 19-year-old of uh, the Valencia midfield. Um, so it does look like that they are shaping up to to bring in some new fresh talent, some fresh faces into the midfield um, at Manchester City, either in the next transfer window or uh, later on uh, next year. But um, yeah, I think that the, I think, I think it's a problem that he can't answer with what he's got. Uh, if, if I'm honest, it seems to be one of those at the moment. I think he's aware, aware of it, but I don't think he has the solution in his hands right now. Is there anything you can add on your comments earlier, Niall? Because I wonder about the pace in that Manchester City team at the moment. Because since they lost, I mean, Leroy Sane would be a great addition to that lineup yeah. at the moment. You can kind of see him being the key to unlocking those defenses. But you, we know what happened there, and he hasn't got Leroy Sane, and it just looks a little bit short of maybe that pace that can mm. break down the sides. And and as we saw so many times when Pep first came in, those two wide players, incredibly fast, getting to the byline, cutting in, creating the goals. It seems to be missing that. Yeah, it's weird you say that because I've got another oh, peculiar stat, let's just say, that Phil Foden is the 10th fastest player in the Premier League. Really? So, you know, they've got... Yeah, I know. It's surprising, isn't it? But according to the statistics, he's the 10th sharpest across the ground um, in the Premier League. So... You know, you've got the likes of him and Bernardo's not short of a turn of pace and Mares can run and Sterling's pretty quick. I mean, they, they do have it. It's just the ability to display it. And I think that's the issue. I think maybe that sides have slightly wised up to some of the attacking play that Manchester City like to, to deploy. I mean, the cutbacks across the penalty area, the short passing around the edge of the box, that is Manchester City's blueprint, particularly get to the byline with the two wingers and, you know, play for cutbacks and there will be someone arriving in the box to finish it off. So I think as well, you mentioned Sane, I think the chipping away of Manchester City's kind of squad over the last couple of seasons uh, you know, we talk about company departing. Kevin De Bruyne was injured for a long period and it's not easy to come back from injury. Although he was brilliant last year, again, he seems to suffer with fatigue more than some of the other players. Um, and he's a player you don't want to be tired because he's so effective when he's fully fit. Um, Sane's obviously gone. Aguero's injury prone. Jesus has got an injury in him as well. So it just feels like maybe... There are a few different problems that are that have accumulated and have turned into something bigger for Manchester City. I think it is very much a case of there's not one quick fix here. It is putting out several small fires um, and that will mm. happen over time. Players will start to come back to full fitness. Um, things will start to click again and fall into place again for City. I mean, Aguero being injured as often as he is is a blow to them no no matter no matter what anyone says even a 75% fit Sergio Aguero strikes fear into a lot of opponents so 
I do think that there's a few different problems there. I mean, creatively, that's not something we ever thought we would suggest Pep Guardiola's sides would have a problem with. Um, and I can't profess to know too much about his career before Man City, even though we've obviously seen him do his work at Bayern Munich and Barcelona. Um, but, you know, this is the longest he's ever spent at a single club. At least it will be by the time his contract expires in 2023. Now he's signed an extension. And those are the problems you have as a manager. And that is what makes the managers like Arsene Wenger and Sir Alex Ferguson so great because they've had to transition sides yeah, from top yeah. title winning sides with other competition on the horizon as well. Like, for instance, in the early 2000s, Sir Alex had Arsene Wenger to contend with at Arsenal. And then the mid 2000s, it was Jose Mourinho's Chelsea. And Manchester United still found a way to come through because Sir Alex was able to adapt and develop that squad and keep every player at the top level. And that's a difficult thing to do. And that is why you don't see managers last 20 years nowadays. I'm not saying Pep's going to last 20 years. I'm not saying Pep's going to fail at it, but it just goes to show how hard it is. He's one of the most revered and successful managers of the modern era. And it's a tough job to try and get a side to transition um, from a title winning side and to maintain that for a period of time. So I don't think City fans are up in arms about it. I don't think City fans should be too concerned. They will finish in the top four for me at the end of the season. Whether they'll win the title is another question. Um, but certainly there are problems there creatively that Pep will need to solve. And that's why he gets paid the big bucks to be the manager. It is a whole new challenge for Pep Guardiola at Manchester City. The next question comes also from Twitter from Pancake Pundit. I don't know whether this is a pundit who gives his opinion on pancakes or whether it is a pundit who is actually a pancake. But either way, the question remains the same. Where do you think Arsenal will finish? And who do you think will be the most surprising sack this season? So I guess the suggestion in the question is Mikel Arteta could be one of the most surprising people to be sacked this season. But I'll let you answer this how you see fit. Ian, how are you going for? Where will Arsenal finish and who's going to get the sack? Well, Arsenal currently, um, I don't know, I can see them finishing in the, scraping into the European spots, you know, top five, top six. Um, I, I don't fancy them making up the ground to, to get into the, the Premier League, uh, sorry, the uh, Champions League um, places. I, I think that's too much of a stretch for them. But I, I fancy them to have a strong, you know, end of the uh, end of the season and get themselves together because they're not going to stay in 14th the whole season, you'd think, or, or, or down there with, uh, you know, the great teams such as Newcastle and Leeds United and uh, all that kind of stuff. As for the surprising sack of the season, I'm going, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, sure if any, manager getting sacked in the Premier League is a surprise when you look at how long they actually do tend to last at um, at clubs but there is one man who's seen them all off over his time uh, and he's currently the longest serving Premier League manager with eight years one month and three days as we sit here today and that is Sean Dyche at Burnley mm. um, he's, uh, he's mm. been with them up and down and up and down again and um, possibly could be going back down again uh, who knows at the end of this season <laughs> but uh, you would they would they ever wave goodbye to Sean Dyche? It would be a big shock if uh, if if they did, considering everything that he's seen them through. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to go with Sean Dyche. Biggest shock, fourteen to one. If you're interested, by the way, but uh, I mean the biggest shock would be would be Klopp, wouldn't it? But I don't see that. Interestingly, Sean Dyche was my pick as well, just because I mean Burnley are shocking at the moment. They're, they're, they're never sparkling, but it's one of their worst seasons so far. The thing that makes it surprising is Sean Dyche seems pretty much untouchable at Burnley and I question whether they'd ever want to get rid of him because who is going to be attracted to that job of the calibre of Sean Dyche at the moment? I think Big also, Sam. 
Well, yeah, I mean, stick, that, it is that, isn't it? It's a stick big Sam into the end of the season kind of scenario. Exactly, but there, what, what's, what's Sam Allardyce going to bring to your your management team that Sean Dyche isn't offering? I think if Sean Dyche does leave, it could be a situation where he walks away from that football club because we know he's not happy with the investment in playing staff. Mm. We know he's mm. not happy with the current setup. So I think if the proverbial poop hits the fan, I think we might see Sean Dyche walk away from that role. I don't think he will. I think he is determined to be that typical stiff upper lip manager and prove that he can get Burnley out of it. I think he's that mm. sort of character. I don't see Sean but what, Dyche but, as but the rat that will, flees will the Burnley take that? Will Burnley take that decision to get rid of him, do you think? Well, the thing is, at this moment in time, obviously with coronavirus, a lack of fans in stadiums, finances are tough because, you know, match day revenue is uh, is down. It, it's been non-existent for eight months. And Burnley are one of the smallest clubs in the Premier League in terms of the budget and the money that they bring in and the revenue that they bring in. Actually, they're a really well-run football club operationally they're brilliant they're one of the only Premier League football clubs um, that either breaks even or turns a profit um, which is like almost unheard of in today's day and age uh, and obviously in terms of broadcast rights which has been a big debate over the last couple of weeks with this 12.30 kickoff argument um, Burnley aren't often picked um, for those prime time slots purely because they've not got a big fan base and they're not the sort of team that people want to watch unfortunately for Clarets fans so mm. To pay off Sean Dyche, I'm not sure how long of his contract there is remaining, but to pay off Sean Dyche would cost Burnley. And, you know, if you're talking about complaints about them not spending money in the transfer market because they can't really afford to, then is sacking a manager and bringing someone in like Big Sam, who's not going to be cheap, really the way to go financially? Um, I absolutely am with Ian on it would be a big shock if they sacked him. But the reason I can't see that happening is, one, because I think... Sean Dyche is too stubborn to let the situation get on top of him. I think he'd be determined to prove that he is a good manager, which he is undoubtedly, uh, and, and get Burnley out of the relegation zone. And also, I just don't think financially it's viable for Burnley Football Club right now mm. in the current climate. And let's face it, I mean, if it is Big Sam they bring in, even if he says no to it, I mean, it's going to be someone else who has got a job of putting out fires uh, at struggling Premier League clubs. So, yeah, I don't see Sean Dyche as the rat that flees the sinking ship either. I don't think he'll walk. I think what would be a massive shock and would send shockwaves, and I don't think he'll be sacked either, is if someone like Bielsa walked out at Leeds United. I always feel that as legendary as Bielsa is and as revered as he is, that when things perhaps don't go to plan, that there's a chance that he might decide that he doesn't want to carry on. And I just think that's because it was the reluctance of him to sign a second year at Leeds when they didn't go up the first time and they managed to convince him and then they got the job done. Um, so yeah, that would that would be another one for me. Um, but perhaps the biggest shock, actually for me, aside from the big hitters like Jurgen Klopp and Pep and whatever, uh, would be Steve Bruce at Newcastle for a very similar reason, financial reason. Uh, and also it shows a bit of um, a bit of ambition from Newcastle if they get rid of Steve Bruce and get someone in. And also the fact that the fans aren't taken to Steve Bruce, they don't like him. I mean, if the ownership, the Ashley ownership, listens to the fans and takes what they says on board and actually acts on what the fans want, I mean, that would be huge. That would be a big biggest shock that, of all. <laughs> exactly. That would shock me more than the departure of yeah, Bruce would be true. the fact that Mike Ashley actually listens to what the fans want. So, I mean, I'd, I certainly agree Burnley is a great shout. Um, I don't think Bielsa will leave Leeds, but if he did, I think it would be a big, big shock. Um, and also Steve Bruce for the reasons I've just outlined. So, yeah, definitely a few in the Premier League. I don't think Arteta will be one of them, though. Final question comes from Mike Rotter on Instagram. Deep breath, because we're about to go into VAR offside territory here. Now, I'm going to add some caveats before I answer mm. this question. I don't want this to 
spiral into a conversation about how to solve the problems of VAR and what's wrong with it and offside and all that kind of thing. I want to just deal with Mike's question, okay? Cool. Yes. Good, right. Got your guarantee. (laughs) The question is, could offside be changed so that your feet must be behind the defender's feet so we're not worrying about people's arms being offside? This is obviously a question that directly relates to what we saw at the weekend on Monday night with Ollie Watkins' goal being ruled offside because the upper part of his arm above the t-shirt line as is in line with the handball rule was ahead of the last defender so is there a potential solution there that it comes down to the defender's feet being offside or onside Nile? yes there you go there's your concise answer you can move on <laughs> uh, no in all fairness yeah you could do offside like that and you could also do offside like daylight but you could also do offside with the t-shirt line and with lines drawn on the pitch and I think Gary Neville made a really good point on this on Monday Night Football and Jamie Carragher they were kind of arguing hammer and tong back and forth about what the right way to go is when they were discussing this on Sky Sports and Gary Neville said well you're always going to be forensically analysing this if you've got technology in the game it doesn't matter where you start the line from you're always going to be looking for that point where someone's over the line and it's always going to be a matter of millimetres it yeah. doesn't matter, it doesn't matter whether... how thick you make the what line. No. Or, like, the line could be 10 metres wide exactly. and you'd still have a point where it's either onside or offside. 100%, Jim. And that's exactly what Gary Neville was trying to say. I don't think he articulated particularly well, but certainly that is the point that he was trying to make, that you know, you could use the nose, the point of someone's nose as the offside. And you know, if the fraction of their nose, like in horse racing, touches the line before the other horse does, they mm. win the race. And it's, it's similar to that with offside. And you know, I think that there needs to be... Um, a more basic understanding of the rule and if if that's someone's foot is behind someone else's foot and you can see that it's clearly behind then therefore the offside goal uh, isn't offside and it stands I think then you getting into muddy waters with someone's head um, for instance you know you can score plenty of goals with your head you don't score goals with your shoulder. I mean, only Mario Balotelli did that, didn't he, really? So no one else... Uh, it, it, I think that, that line... I think the two rules, aren't they? The offside rule and the VAR rule... Uh, and the, the offside rule and the handball rule, sorry, are sort of combating each other. They're counteracting yeah. each other. And it's becoming counterproduction. Yeah, it's coming counterproductive and it's getting confusing. So I think that the point of having, you know, someone's furthest forward foot behind the defender's foot... I think that's a completely logical way to go. I mean, you could even strip it back even further and go back to daylight. And I think one of the key arguments about this is what do people want to see when they watch a game of football? They want to see goals. They want to see goals. That's the point. I mean, I know sport is is extremely lucrative nowadays and the players and the staff put everything into a into a 38-game season and they want to get their just rewards at the end of it. But... Although the financial implications are huge, let's not lose sight of the reason that we play sport, and that's for the entertainment and the enjoyment of the fans. And it's just a bit clinical. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, it just makes it all a bit clinical because I think half of the drama of of, of football before a, a world of VAR was the fact that you did have controversial decisions and the thinking that over the course of a season, these things sort of even themselves out. Whereas now it's all a little mm. bit joyless. There's not that little extra bonus of, of, a, of a goal going in that really shouldn't, but that maybe changes your season and you know likewise it would happen to another team further down and and you know karma would dish itself out it's just a little bit kind of 
you know, as I say, taking the joy out of it slightly. It's also playing havoc with the salt and pepper pot uh, way of explaining um, <laughs> uh, offsides to anybody who doesn't understand football. But I quite like this idea, the the Dutch idea of um, of of you know the 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 ten centimetre wide sort of zone where it comes down to linesman's call. You know, I mean, it's a system that I think we mentioned before, like in cricket. You know, the umpire has mm. a sort of decision of of what you know if the linesman put his, his flag up and. You know, it's yep. so close. Well, you know, it's up to you, up to the Agreed. referee. I think you've got to have that element of doubt. I mean, you know, getting crosshairs out and things like that. And, you know, somebody's sort of a millimetre offside. I mean, really? I mean, you, the human eye can't catch that. Mm. But I'll tell you what you've got to be careful of in yeah. all this is Googling Dutch 10 centimetre. Clear your history. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. Very wise advice. Uh, thank you for your question, Mike. I think it's a great suggestion maybe having the feet as the points that can or can't be offside because it makes sense. It's easier to call where a foot is in terms of position because it's on the ground whereas you're not judging someone's nose or whatnot and it's all about just making sure it's a level playing field I guess at the end of the day but the problem is you've still got VAR you've still got I mean fractional decisions being made and I think it was a confusion when VAR was introduced I think fans were confused about what they wanted they didn't want fairness they wanted entertainment as you say Niall and the cat's out of the bag a little bit with this one I think that the umpires call as they do it in cricket and the linesman's call as it would be in football I think that is a really smart way to go because then if it is marginal it allows people to throw their hands up more and say well that's fair enough you know it's not clear not clear cut it's not black and white to the point where it is in that gray area of which there's plenty of gray areas in the game of football by the way Um, it's not as simple as the ball crossing the line like we see the goal line technology you know whether the ball's over or not we've got the technology in place Mm. to sort that out offside it's impossible because of the fluidity of the game and people moving around for the naked eye, it's difficult to be a referee and difficult to be an assistant. I think if we, let's say, yeah, yeah. are within that grey area where the offside territory is within a certain percentage of being close, then we'll just give the benefit of the doubt to the linesman. I think Ian's right. I think that's the way forward to go because it then gives a little bit of the element of control back to the referees. They're not going to be scared to make the decisions. The assistant referee knows that if he's completely wrong and makes a complete howler, then VAR can step in and prove that it's a complete mistake however um if he's right the game can be allowed to continue as per and if it's close they can just quickly check and show that it's uh, a linesman's call so it's one of those where they can even analyze it in the studio after the game where even if even if it doesn't even go to the technology and the referees quickly check it and they say right that's fine it's in linesman's call um territory uh, and then after the game you know they'll get their ipads out and their styluses and they'll zoom mm. in and they'll say oh look there we go it's in the gray area therefore it's umpires cool so i think that that's one of those things which uh, i think could really improve the game i think probably declan rice had it called right on monday night however after the game where he said there aren't going to be any changes between now and the end of the season i think they've messed with it probably tinkered enough and we're going to be looking at changes from next season onwards it will be addressed i have no doubt in the summer though speaking of declan rice we're going to talk about his club next because floodlight focus is looking at west ham and that is next on football social daily football social daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk to hear the latest premier league news for your team just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily, and it's time for our floodlight focus, looking at a different Premier League club 
each day and it is my team today. It's West Ham. And to talk about West Ham, we've got Harry Smith, freelance journalist for the likes of West Ham Till I Die and Forever West Ham. How are you doing, Harry? I'm good, thank you, Jim. Are you, I mean, as a West Ham journalist, it's probably quite a nice place to be at the moment because despite all the negativity at the beginning of the season and the threat of relegation and whatnot, West Ham fifth in the table, not what was expected at all. Yeah, definitely. I was. Um, I think if you if we'd have been doing this uh, at the start of the season, I would have been uh, pretty pessimistic and uh, not looking forward to the season. But fifth in the table, uh, seventeen points, only four off uh, the top spot. I think. But um, yeah, it's been it's been very uh, un West Ham like. I think uh, <laughs> West Ham fans will know what that means. But um, yeah, I've been I've been pretty impressed with. Uh, West Ham under David Moyes this season. What do you think it is that David Moyes has got right this season? Because, I mean, we know he's changed his tactics from the first game at Newcastle, which was terrible. And since then, he's kind of played the three at the back with the wing backs and the one up front. Has he finally found the right balance in his team? Is he doing everything right at the moment or is there still work to be done? I think he's uh, he's doing a lot right. I think uh, the one thing that, uh, some West Ham fans on social media often perhaps uh, criticise Moyes for is maybe his substitutions or his kind of lack of uh, or lack of them really sometimes in, in order to change a game. But I think the, the formation change, as you said, Jim, has been key to West Ham improving this season. The, the three at the back really helps Masuaku, for example. I think he's uh, looked much more effective in this system having not really been playing much before that um but i think ultimately it's it's the kind of the work ethic that he's instilled i think often you you see when a, a new manager or in this case a manager coming back in fans say oh well i've seen improvement and, and you're often not sure if, if you're not a fan of that team you maybe think oh they're just saying that but i think definitely Moyes is making the players work a lot harder um, they're definitely more determined and I think they're ultimately at the moment less likely to capitulate in games, which I think, unfortunately, you could label that at West Ham under Pellegrini. Have you been surprised, you talk about the changes at the back, by the form of Aaron Cresswell, who has slotted into that left-sided centre-back role and seems to have made that position his own, despite the fact there being actual players who play in that position available for David Moyes to select? Yeah, definitely. I was um, someone uh, who was quite critical of Cresswell um, as a left back because I think maybe he was starting to struggle there. Perhaps didn't have the, the pace uh, to come up against some of the wingers in the Premier League nowadays. But I think in this left centre back role, it gives him great freedom, uh, and it also benefits Masuaku because Masuaku is allowed to. Uh, roam forward a bit more and he doesn't have to focus as much on the defensive side of the game and it also allows him uh, both Cresswell and Masuaku to link up nicely and they both can put in some kind of dangerous crosses into the box down the left side which I, and I, I've enjoyed that certainly on that side of the pitch. What's happened to those dissenting voices that we heard at the beginning of the season because there was a lot of West Ham fans that were bitterly opposed to the regime of the current board. We saw GBS out, gold Brady Sullivan trending on Twitter. But 
As the results have improved, it seems like the anger has been tempered a little bit as well. Is there still that negativity towards the current regime? Yeah, I, I agree. I think there probably still is, but inevitably when you're winning or you're winning a number of games, that is probably going to dissipate a bit. But I think the sale of uh, Grady Dean Garner in the summer was really what uh, was the last straw for a number of West Ham fans. And I'm sure, as you know, Jim, it was was very negative in the summer and going into this season. Mm. I actually probably predicted us to really be in a relegation battle. I just thought the atmosphere around the club was so negative and, and a lot of people were calling for David Gold and David Sullivan to to leave the club. But I think that's where you have to give great credit to David Moyes because uh, he's come back in. Some fans were not maybe, and I was probably one of them, I wasn't particularly inspired by him, his reappointment, but he's come in and he's got the, the team kind of working hard, kind of, it's almost a, a back-to-basics approach, but I think that's really what a lot of these West Ham players needed because under previous managers, I think you could question the fitness of a lot of our players late in games, but I, we're not seeing that anymore. We're seeing West Ham kind of battle till the end of games, and as we can see with the last three games, we've been able to win them all, certainly because of, we're a lot more resilient under David Moyes. I think a lot of the negativity towards Golden Sullivan comes from a perceived lack of investment in the playing squad. And to me, the West Ham squad still looks incredibly thin, a few injuries away from disaster, potentially. So what's going to happen in January? Is there going to be a further investment to build out that squad? Or are we going to see maybe a bit of penny pinching again and potentially those those angry protests bubbling to the surface once more? Yeah, it's a good point. I think um, I think whilst we're flying high under Moyes at the moment, I think if we were to get an injury to Declan Rice, for example, or maybe Angelo or Bonner, um, I think those two in particular, uh, you could probably name a couple of other players, but I think we, I think Rice is the heartbeat of the team. Uh, any West Ham fan would say that, and he's been incredibly good, and he continues to improve. I think if he was to get injured, we'd we'd be in real trouble potentially. But in terms of January acquisitions, I think there, I think there may be a bit of penny pinching again, as you said. Um, but it ultimately depends on how we're doing in the league. But mm. because I think David Sullivan and Co will be in, inclined to not spend much money, uh, if any, if we're continuing to do well. But I can definitely see some uh, some negativity coming towards the end of the January window if fans feel like we we need some depth in certain areas. I guess that's, that's the main problem with the board, isn't it? That, that many other boards would see the team performing well, being in fifth in the league and go, right, let's double down, let's see if we can build on this. Whereas Golden Sullivan are like, well, it seems to be going all right, let's... Let's not invest any more at this stage. The last transfer that came in at the end of the window was Said Benrama from Brentford, who's actually on loan rather than with a view to buy at the end of the season. That was to do with the speed of getting the transfer through rather than actually any kind of constructive deal. But we've seen him fleetingly in a few of West Ham's games so far. He came on at half time in the game at the weekend, or game on Monday night rather. There's been a fair few calls for him to start on social media, mostly from Algerians who want to see their homeboy get some time on the pitch. Do you think he's done enough 
in his appearances so far to earn that starting role? And if so, who does he come in and replace? Um, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think um, I didn't watch a lot of Brentford in, in the Championship last season, but I know that um, Ben Rama is kind of a, a clearly a very skillful player. Um, I do wonder with Ben Rama uh, whether he's really a, a kind of Moyes style of player, type of player that Moyes really kind of believes in. I think the reason why we've seen um, uh, Pablo Fornells play so much is because he works incredibly hard and also it brings an element of creativity to the team. But I think he he maybe does deserve a start because he can unlock a defence um, and he's not afraid to take his, his man on. So I think if he does play this weekend, uh, it would probably be for Pablo Fornells, I, I think. Harry, awesome to speak to you. If people want to find more from you and read some of your writing maybe on West Ham, where can they find you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Harry underscore Smith six. Nice one, Harry. That is it for Football Social Daily for another day. Niall, thank you very much. Thanks, gentlemen. Ian, good to hear from you. Always a pleasure. And we'll have more Football Social Daily with the latest Premier League news tomorrow. Make sure you hit subscribe so you get that episode as soon as it's ready. Football Social Daily from Sport Social. Find us on Facebook. Search Sport Social. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha! In my dentist's office, more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.